good morning, everyone. I feel I'm now getting to look up at all of you. So, on my easy chair. So, what a privilege to be here with you this weekend to share what is, to my, from my perspective, truly sublime dharma. Very simple, but so profound. Practically helpful. And I know some of you have been meditating 20, 30 years, maybe even longer. And it's possible some, for some of you, it might, is it possible that some of you are coming to your first retreat? Oh, oh, one or two, good. Well, I think for all of us, whether I've been meditating now almost 50 years or your first one, this is a really good introduction, really good introduction. And from people from any type of worldview, including if one is a very committed materialist, many of my best friends are and very ethical people, compassionate people, a worldview I don't, I don't agree with, but you know, this, the practices we're engaging in here are really just wide open, inviting to everyone. And I love that aspect of it. And there is a very clear connection. I won't ask for a, a show of hands of how many people attended the talk last night, but a very smooth transition from the theme of cultivating genuine happiness rather than pursuing hedonia, pursuing happiness as if it's somehow, somewhere out there. If I could just write, find the right partner, the right job, the right house, the right, 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 then I will have perfected samsara and I'll live happily ever after until little things like aging, sickness, and death kick in. <laughs> So we are, for those of us who are Buddhists, as I mentioned last night, in Tibetan, we simply called ourselves in Tibetan Nangba. Nangba, which in, means insider, insider. And as I mentioned last night, nothing elitist about it, like we're the insiders, we're the elite, we're the chosen, nothing of that sort at all. It's not the implication, but rather in our pursuit of happiness, in our pursuit of meaning, of fulfillment, of joy, our wish to suffer less, less distress, less anxiety, less unhappiness, that we've Kind of, we begin by waking up, waking up. We begin by waking up. And that is all of the advertising, so much of the media, so much of the, the drift, the flow, the current of modernity is if you, if you want to be happy, look over here. Look over here, look over, look outside of yourself. If you want to know why you're unhappy, well, it's your brain chemistry. It's dopamine, it's serotonin, look out here. This is what's really making you unhappy. Look out here, look out here at your brain, out here. Look at, the, look at the politics, look at the administration, look. This is what's out here, out here. Those are outsiders. They may be Christian, they may be Buddhist, they may be atheist or whatever, but we're waking up to the fact that the true source is so simple and you all know it, but I'm gonna say it anyway. If you've awakened from the illusion that happiness is out there to be pursued, captured like a dog running down a rabbit, catching it and then munching it. Happiness is not a rabbit. It's not out there. Not in another person or a place or a job or anything else. That the sources of our happiness are within, the sources of our unhappiness are within. And as we're reflecting on this this morning, we now know that there are so many weapons of mass destruction, quite a variety, haven't we, developed. Almost entirely by men, I'll bet you. Entirely by men. Women are too busy doing other things. But the, the most formidable, most awesome, powerful weapon of mass destruction known to humanity, any guesses? How about the human mind? No human mind, no human ingenuity, no human brilliance, no human-made weapons of mass destruction. It is the mind that is the most powerful in a destructive way. And then we look at the glories that humanity has brought to the world glories in so many different ways, you know them as well as I do, you don't need to list them. But the magnificence of human existence, the splendor of the human spirit, 
and the creations we've made, and you know, architecture, music, art, science, technology, just awesome. How noble human beings can be. And what is the source of the great nobility, the majesty, the splendor, and the beauty that human beings bring to the planet to this day? And it all springs from the human mind. So I mentioned last night, it's so quintessential if for those of us following in the footsteps of the awakened one, the person who is fully awakened to the nature of reality and thereby found freedom. Our first task is to not harm. Isn't it simple? Our first task is not to harm. Not on our spousal relationships, not on our community, not with the cashier behind the cash register in the market. First task is don't harm. If we just did that, if we just stop right there, and all, all humanity, all of a we just get a big, great big microphone and say, humanity, 7.8 billion people, can we agree on something? Let's just not harm each other or any other species or the ecosphere. Can we just agree on that? Whatever world you, you have, that's fine, no problem. But can we just agree on this? Let us not harm. Let us leave this world not only untarnished by our presence, but actually as a gift to their children and grandchildren and the future generations that our presence here has made the ecosphere and our whole environment a more fruitful, more benevolent, more peaceful place to live. They could stop right there, couldn't we? But the Buddha doesn't stop there. He said, do no harm. And then engage in a bounty of virtue. Bounty of virtue, and that is we have so many opportunities. Like right now, as I gaze at Polly's smiling face, it's so nice to see an old friend, a pleasant smile, a friendly smile. That's your gift to me this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Old friends, old friends. The gift of a smile, a warm embrace, kind words, gifts of more tangible qualities. But it's benevolence. I love that word. It has a sweet, sweet sound to it, doesn't it? It's not sticky. It's not saccharine. Just benevolence. And we have so many opportunities throughout the day, on the telephone, the email, and so forth. Manifest benevolence. And that was the second line. And if you stop right there, and that's all you did for your whole life, you just did your best from day to day, from encounter to encounter, to avoid violence, avoid harm. And wherever the opportunity arises, you can offer something that's helpful, beneficial, kind, and warm-hearted. And if that's all you ever did, you never went to one meditation seminar, didn't meditate for one second, wouldn't that be a magnificent life? Wouldn't it be magnificent? And when you're dying, couldn't it look back on your life and celebrate, knowing full well this was a good life? And I didn't meditate for one second. <laughs> Other people meditate, knock yourself out, I'm glad for you. But wow, was this a good life. Wouldn't that be true? And that's eudaimonia. That's not something you pursued. You're not going to find it around the corner or in another person or any, anywhere else. That's something we can all bring. And we can. We can. But the Buddha wasn't finished yet, was he? Rangi semiyonsudul. Completely subdue, train, cultivate soothe and calm your mind. So for those of you, I'm sure many of you have background in Buddhism, that really, what is summarized in that phrase, of course, is all of Buddhist meditation, but very specifically, shamatha and vipassana. The heart of Buddhist meditation, whether you're Zen, Theravada, Mayana, Vajrayana, whatever, the heart of Buddhist meditation is first refining, purifying, developing, cultivating your mind and very centrally your attention and that calms the mind. It subdues, it alleviates the burden 
of five obscurations, which we'll look, to, look into a little bit later, today, tomorrow. And then once one has really elevated one's mind to quite an extraordinary, sublime degree of balance, of health, of refinement, then use that wonderfully tuned, like a tuned instrument, like a Stradivarius, that tuned instrument of your mind, and use that now for the most important thing that human being can ever do. Fathom the nature of reality. I, 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 I mangled him and Henry David Thoreau last night at, le at length, and I'll <laughs> mangle him only briefly. But let us simplify our lives for this brief, these brief moments that we have as, as, as human beings and understand what it is to be human, what, understand what is the nature of reality we're experiencing. Seize the day. We human beings with our intelligence, creativity, imagination, we actually have the capacity to fathom what's going on and to know who we are. We do have that opportunity. And there is no only way. That's the only way. The only way is there is no only way. And I found my way and I revel in it. I, I, I swim in it. I frolic in it. I feel so much at home in the Buddhist worldview. But at the same time, with such appreciation, admiration for the scientific worldview. And then the more I was raised as a Christian, and the more I learned about it now at a much deeper level, more than respect, reverence, reverence for this path, the Christian path, in its magnificence, you know. And we go on from there. And so that was my segue from the talk last night to what I'll be sharing with you this morning and this afternoon. Um, but it just occurred to me that I'd like to begin with a quote, and some of you have heard it before, but I would, I would invite you to imagine when this was written. The, the phrasing will give you a, kind of be, give something of a giveaway, but here's one of my favorite quotes, you ready? And it segues exactly into peace of mind as the way to genuine well-being. And so here's a quote by a powerful thinker, a mathematician, a philosopher, etc. and he writes, when I've occasionally set myself to consider the different distractions of men, the pains and perils to which they expose themselves at court or in war, whence arise so many quarrels, passions, bold and often bad ventures, etc. I've discovered that all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. So we'll have two mornings, two mornings, cultivate the ability, ability to sit quietly in our own chamber. And for those of you who attended the talk last night, such that you can sit for 15 minutes or maybe even longer on a chair, a nice comfortable chair like this, and have a little electric socket that you could pick, put your finger into <laughs> if you get bored, and actually get right through 15 minutes and never, if, never have the finger, <laughs> the finger getting curious, you know, that you can really you can stand being yourself and not only bear it, but you can actually revel in simply being who you are with no props, with no props, with no stimulation, no entertainment, nothing to amuse or arouse yourself. To begin the, I literally believe it is the greatest adventure a human being can possibly embark upon. Literally, I believe. 
and it doesn't cost anything at all, except your time, your heart, your soul, your aspirations, your ideals. It just costs that. That's the only charge. And that is to explore the inner dimensions of our own being and just go deeper and deeper and deeper, cutting through layer and layer, honoring all the layers from how you look and honoring that. Everybody looks as you are. We're human beings. You look like a very much human being. Nice to look at you. <laughs> Greetings. And right from there, it's pleasant to look upon each other. We're human beings. And then we, that's just what we see. But then we strike up a conversation, we get to know each other, and we go deeper, and we go deeper. What are the hidden treasures, the natural resources, the unexplored depths of our own being? And for that, there needs to be some clarity, almost like, oh, the air quality in Delhi in, Den in December. I've been there. You can hardly see across the street. You know, Beijing is like that. Sydney, I was just there a few weeks ago. Oh, so sad. So sad. A billion animals died. But what we experienced there in Sydney was just the air quality. When the quality of the air of your mind is like that, full of smoke, full of dust, that you just can't see. You can't see because the mind is so, so fogged up, so contaminated, so cluttered. There's a word. So cluttered with just the noise of the mind that we just can't settle down. I had a long and very interesting dialogue with a journalist from the top newspaper in Tel Aviv just about a month ago. Very bright woman, very engaging. And we sat down for an interview for the newspaper there. And she began the conversation saying, Alan, I've never experienced peace of mind. I never have it. I never have peace of mind. I said, then we had enough, and then we had a conversation. And then she came to the first two or three days, days of my retreat, which I, think, which I think she had no intention of doing. And basically, in those first two or three days, we covered what we'll do here in two days. And that was enough. I think she just got just the right portion, and then she had enough to practice. So I'd like to now wrap up this preamble and go directly to meditation. And the practice I'd like to share with you is the prelude the prelude to the main practices of shamatha, mindfulness of breathing specifically, that we will cultivate these practices being exactly designed to bring about a sense of ease in the body and the mind, a sense of stillness, just the opposite of being fidgety, multitasking, agitated, etc., fidgeting, whether physically or mentally, a sense of ease, a sense of stillness, and then a sense of clarity. Embodied in your posture by sitting like Polly is right now, like Eva is right now, or many of our old meditators, sitting very upright, sitting at attention, you know? And so your, 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 your posture itself, when you're sitting cross-legged and you're comfortable there, it's an expression already, I'm wide awake. I'm not here, I'm not here watching TV or, just, or snoozing or daydreaming, but you're sitting upright, spine, direct, spine straight, and so relaxation, stillness, and clarity integrating these three qualities, to bring about peace of mind, to, be, to begin to explore the inner resources of our own minds and to discover for ourselves that our minds have always been the wellspring of every moment of joy we've ever experienced. Whether I gave the little trivial example of eating a really delicious gelato or having a friendly conversation 
or seeing a beautiful sunset and so forth. Whatever pleasure we've ever gotten anywhere, and we say from anything, you name it, the source of that pleasure, where did the pleasure actually come from? Did it come from the molecules in the ice cream? Did it come from the colors on the sky? Did it come in the sound waves of the person you're having a conversation with? And of course not. Happiness, pleasure, joy, satisfaction, sense of well-being doesn't travel through the air. It doesn't have a physical medium. But our encounters of the people and so forth may trigger, may catalyze joy, pleasure, peace of mind. But all of the joy you've ever experienced has emerged from your own mind and never anywhere else. And so the practice I'd like to begin pretty much now within a minute or two, uh, if you'd like just a name for it, Settling body, speech, and mind in the natural state is the traditional translation from the Tibetan. A bit more contemporary name would be settling one's body, speech, and mind in a state of dynamic equilibrium. That sounds a bit more antiseptic and scientific, but it is also accurate. Dynamic in the sense of it's not heavy, it's not drowsy, it's not dull. It's dynamic, full of energy, vitality, clarity, but equilibrium, the balance. Dynamic equilibrium. You found equilibrium, but it's not sinking. It's the equilibrium of a bird on a wire, ready to fly. And so settling body, speech, and mind. And I've been practicing a long time. I was introduced to this about 30 years ago by one of my so revered teachers, Gautu Rinpoche, going right back to Padmasambhava, who's depicted right here. Um, as a prelude to every other type of meditation, but I would say a prelude to any type of meaningful activity whatsoever. So we're, we're, you probably know we're sitting in what used to be a middle school. The practice we're about to do, and we'll take our time at it, I think it would be marvelous in an abbreviated version if this simple practice were taught to kindergartners. Five minutes, three minutes is fine. And then to middle schoolers, maybe make it five to ten minutes. And high schoolers and undergraduates and postdoctoral students, because you're about to have the opportunity to learn something about to have the opportunity. And William James, again, one of my, my heroes, said that the ability to cultivate your attention so that you can sustain your attention voluntarily with clarity and so forth, the ability to sustain your attention is the very essence of education par excellence. If educators could teach their students how to pay attention, then that would be the prelude to receiving an education of the best possible sort. And if students in the classroom can't pay attention, their minds are just too ADHD, either too dull and sinking or lethargic, spaced out, or just too agitated, they just can't focus for longer than a couple of seconds, then even if you have the best teacher in the state of California, award-winning, absolutely spectacular, in every way, eloquence, enthusiasm, vitality, caring, compassion, just your, your teacher of perfection, if the student can't pay attention, so that's what we're here for, to learn how to attend. And I think my final word here is this is the word I'll be using a lot to this morning and tomorrow morning, attention, attention. It really has become one of my favorite words, especially when I went into its etymology. Attention means to tend to. It goes back to the early French, back to the Latin. It means to tend to. Tend to as a shepherd tends to his sheep. It means to watch over, to care for, and look after. So Dr. Eva Natanya will be complimenting, as I'm complimenting her, she'll be, my teaching will complement her teachings, hers will mine. She is going to give teachings and, and, and meditations this, today and tomorrow afternoon, really to open the heart. 
and again to open, to let flow our, our capacity, our potential for caring, for loving kindness, for affection. And this one word, attention, then covers exactly, it's the bridge between these more executive control, to use a psychological term, the executive control, learning how to pay attention. Well, that's exactly what we're doing this morning, but attending to, watching over, caring for, and looking after ourselves and others. Well, that's loving kindness. That's loving kindness. So there'll be morning, the afternoon, and the bridge between the two will be tending to. And as I'm running on again, I do that a lot. Whenever I say this will be short, never believe me. <laughs> you just have to get used to that. I, I'm always sincere and I'm being honest and almost always and not true. <laughs> but I do fly a lot, and I'm sure many of you do, and how many times have you heard, in the unlikely case of a sudden drop of, cas ca of cabin pressure, the oxygen mask is going to drop, and then what do they say? Even if you're, you're a mother and your child is right there, do not follow your instinct. Of course, you'd rather die rather than have your, you'd sacrifice your life. There's no question. Most mothers, I think, would do that. Let me die. My child is only two years old. But don't follow your instinct. Put, first, put the oxygen mask on yourself, and then attend to your children and anybody else around who needs you. First, put the oxygen mask on your own mind. First, calm your mind, soothe your mind, nurture. Tend to, watch over, care for, look after your own mind. First, that. It's not selfish. It's smart. It's benevolent. It's skillful means. And that's all to write down. All that's all. So, please find a comfortable position. Chairs look quite good. I always look at your chairs. They look quite nice. So you'd like your spine to be straight feet flat on the ground. And this is going to be a full 24-minute session. And this will be the prelude to any type of meditation you ever engage in. And a prelude to any type of meaningful activity you ever engage in. So I am, I found it to be enormously useful and very simple. You'll hear this chime multiple times at the beginning of each session, I presume in the afternoon as well as the morning. I invite you to respond when you hear the chime. Let your first response be to relax, to feel your shoulders drop, Face relax, all the muscles of the face relax. And most internally relax your mind, set your mind at ease. And if like many of us you feel you're located up in the head, that seems to be your home, the nesting place of your mind. Let your awareness descend. Right down into your torso through the torso, descend down through the thighs, down through the calves, down to the soles of your feet. A simple awareness, a quiet, non-discursive awareness, often called bare attention. Let your awareness descend right to the ground, 
your body is in contact with your chair, the floor, the meditation cushion. the internal chit-chat of the mind and simply be present, experiencing the sensations of the earth element, the sensations of firmness and solidity, your body held and supported by the ground, by the earth itself. Entering a dimension of reality that is free of thought and free of labels, this field of tactile sensations. There are no words or concepts here. There's just the immediacy of these tactile sensations arising from moment to moment. So let your awareness similarly be simple and quiet and non-conceptual, non-verbal. Simply experience the sensations of your body in contact with and supported by the earth. Afflictions of the mind, all your concerns, hopes and fears, all the agitation, they're all up there in the conceptual mind. That's where they reside, and that's where they proliferate. Come to rest now in a deeper ground, this quiet, simple, your non-conceptual awareness engages with, attends to, the non-conceptual sensations of your body touching the earth. Then like a fragrance filling a room, let your awareness rise up and permeate the entire field of tactile sensations, this whole somatic field. Aware of the sensations arising through your legs, through your torso, your arms, filling the space, the somatic space, with the light of your awareness, mindfully present throughout the entire field, experience this whole body of tactile sensations, the immediate experience of being embodied. all thoughts, all mental imagery, all imaginations of what your body looks like. And experience your body nakedly without the mediation of thought or concept. And in this immediacy of your experience of being embodied, you may 
Identify parts of the body, regions of this space that feel contracted, tense. As you allow the breath to flow effortlessly in and out with each inhalation, attending gently, closely, to areas that feel tight. And as you breathe out, surrender these muscles to gravity. to the face, which is so expressive of our emotions, our hopes and fears, bring awareness to the jaws and soften the muscles, relax. Bring awareness to the forehead, let it feel open, expansive, relaxed. An openness between the eyebrows, softening of all the muscles around the eyes. Soften your eyes themselves. When we're tense, anxious, upset, feel the eyes harden. When we're driven, when there's a lot of ego coming up, the eyes harden. Soften the eyes with a gentle gaze. Set your whole body at ease in a posture of relaxation, comfort. Insofar as you are indeed comfortable, relaxed, <coughs> let your body be still. No unnecessary movement, just the natural fluctuation of the body breathing in and breathing out. Remain still. Again, with the spine straight sternum just slightly lifted, the abdominal muscles loose and relaxed, as a soldier stands at attention, as a contemplative sit at attention, spine straight, belly loose and relaxed, so that when you breathe in, the sensations of the breath flow right down to the belly, even the lower abdomen, which expands as you breathe in tracks as you breathe out. In this way we assume a posture of vigilance. And in so doing we settle the body in a state that is relaxed, still, and vigilant. A state of dynamic equilibrium. we turn to settling the speech in its natural state. 
And what is meant by this is letting your speech settle in effortless silence. And that's easy. You've already accomplished that. That's in terms of your, of your public speech, the speech that other people can hear. But what about the inner voice, the speech, the chit-chat of the mind? Another type of speech, which is private. Can you settle the, settle the inner voice of your mind in a sustained way, in effortless silence? that you think voluntarily, and when you're finished, you release your mind into silence, and not the meaningless noise of mental chit-chat and rumination. Facilitate this stilling, this very gentle stilling of the inner voice of the mind. To facilitate this, we settle the respiration in its natural rhythm. And that means effortless, unconstrained, unimpeded. It means allowing the body to breathe without intervention, without preference, without going into manual control, but allowing the body to breathe in and out with each cycle in accordance with its needs in the moment, from breath to breath. likely the, the healthiest breathing that we experience in a 24-hour period, the most revitalizing, rejuvenating, refreshing, is when we're in deep, dreamless sleep, after which we wake up and we feel fully refreshed, wide awake. Let us emulate that type of breathing now, allowing the body to breathe of its own accord without interference. key to this is the out-breath. Every exhalation is a natural opportunity, an invitation, if you like, to relax more and more deeply, to relinquish all control, to surrender joyfully. So with each exhalation, attending closely the rhythm of the breath. As the breath flows out, relax, and relax, release, and release. 
until the exhalation comes fully to an end and you've given all your breath away, holding nothing in reserve. Without pushing out the breath, but also without holding it in. Fearlessly. Breathe out completely. When you come to the very end, that's a time to be very still, very attentive, utterly relaxed. And simply allow the next breath to flow in of its own accord. It may flow in immediately or after you've exhaled. There may be a pause, five seconds, 10 seconds, could be longer. But simply allow the next breath to flow in without pulling it in, without effort, like a wave washing up on shore. Let the breath flow in, whether it's short or long, deep or shallow, let it be. And experience your body breathing. And then again, the breath flows out, relaxed as a wave goes out to the sea again. Breathe out completely. With every exhalation, relax the body more and more deeply. Release the breath all the way through to the end. And with each out-breath, whatever thoughts or memories, images may have come to mind, as if with a sigh of relief, as you breathe out, Gently release them. Let them dissolve, evaporate back into the space of the mind. As with each exhalation, you gently, soothingly return to silence. Breathing as if you were deep asleep. Letting the body take in just what it needs with each inhalation, give back just what it doesn't need with every exhalation. And then we turn to the subtlest challenge, and that is to settle the mind in its natural state, and this starts out in the same way as the body and the breath. Set your mind at ease. Whatever cares and concerns, hopes and fears you may have, and they may be very legitimate, worthy of your attention, but not all the time. Just for this moment, for these few remaining minutes of this session, be carefree. your mind at ease, loose, relaxed. Releasing all desires and hopes and fears. Be content just to be present.
as you release the grasping of hope and fear, desire and aversion, what's left as the fog clears, the clutter of the mind subsides, what remains? Awareness, naturally still, hovering in the immediacy of the present moment. a dandelion seed, seed hovering in midair. Let your awareness be relaxed, at ease, and still, uncloaked, unveiled, released from all the entanglements of hopes and fears, thoughts, memories, anticipations, hovering in the spaciousness, the openness, the stillness of awareness itself. As you unveil the simplicity, the stillness of your own awareness, you will discover that awareness itself is by its own nature luminous, bright, clear, awake. Uncloak awareness, and you see it's naturally bright. It is only the mind that becomes dull on occasion, agitated. still and naturally clear and rest right there with your awareness at ease still and clear rest in that stillness even while thoughts images memories come and go like clouds drifting across the sky but in the midst of the movements of the mind awareness be still. This way you settle your mind in its natural state. Like a pool of muddy water that you let simply sit and let all this silt gently come to settle on the bottom. And you see the water itself is transparent, clear. When you settle the mind in its natural state, all this sediment Thoughts, agitation, rumination, they settle. And you see your awareness nakedly, crystal clear, spacious, 
your inner refuge. Your mind, when the world sometimes seems like a hurricane, you're resting in the eye of the hurricane, the still point. just jumped right into the first session this morning uh, out of habit. That is the way I began was out of habit. Because normally when I'm leading retreats, we're starting at 9 o'clock. Um, I slept in this morning until 5.30, but I still had several hours to practice before coming here. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just kind of assuming implicitly, you've already started the day. You know, your preliminary practices, if you're Buddhist refuge, Buddhist, you've already done that. So we're ready to go right into the main practice here. But I see that uh, had I been really obedient, we would have done these lovely prayers here, maybe tomorrow. Or maybe do them before you come, but whatever you like, because I'm sure we come from diverse backgrounds here. And these practices, everything we're sharing with you, both Ina and I, everything we're sharing with you, it really is for everyone. This is not just for people following this worldview or Tibetan Buddhists versus Theravada Buddhists, nothing like that. And so, so now we turn to the notes. And I think we'll go on for about a half an hour, and then we'll take a break. Um, so here's just, the, again, the little bridge from last night's talk to, to everything we're doing for these two days. 
the Buddha in the in the Pali Canon, the Majjhima Nikaya, says this is a very close paraphrase or summary of what he's saying there. Find out what really constitutes true well-being, genuine well-being, and based on this understanding, once you get a vision, once you get a vision, how could I truly flourish? Not just be lucky or fortunate, have good days and so forth, but how in the midst of the the inevitable vicissitudes of daily life and the flux, the ups and downs on a personal level, the national level, weather and everything else. We know everything around us, everything around us, including our minds and our bodies and our social relationships and the environment and politics and economics, everything is in a state of flux and almost all of it is out of control, beyond our control. Isn't that true? And so one could ask then, but when there's so much flux, everything going up and down and often down, 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 a bit of up, how can one possibly have any peace of mind? Is it even legitimate, to be really raw and blunt here, is it even legitimate, can we allow ourselves to have peace of mind in a world where there's so, so much inconceivable distress, pain, agony, despair, conflict, violence? I can imagine part of my mind saying, how dare you? think that you're worthy of having peace of mind when hardly anybody else has it. You know, how dare you? How, how can you have peace of mind when the world is screaming? You know, there's so much pain and so much self-inflicted pain. How can you bear it? And if you are experiencing unbearable compassion, mm. and that's exactly translation of the Tibetan. If you're experiencing unbearable compassion, then even Avalokiteshvara weeps. Then who are you to think that you you deserve or are entitled to peace of mind? And I think the same question be, can be asked to the mother when the oxygen mask drops. How dare you put this on yourself before you put it on your child? What kind of a mother are you? And yet we know wisdom says that is the way to go. If we are to be agents of peace, of soothing, of calming, of healing in this world whether in a difficult spousal relationship, or with our children, or with anything else, if we are to be messengers of peace, agents of healing, how can we possibly do that? If our own minds are wrought up and tangled in the grip of anguish for the world. And just, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, just springs to mind. Springs to mind. I don't know if, I, I doubt that I know of anyone who's more vividly aware of the depth and the breadth of suffering in the world. He's so cosmopolitan. He travels more than I do. He's slowing down now. He's 84. But still, the amount of traveling and making himself available, 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 absolutely awesome. So no one can say that he's an escapist. He is absolutely there, facing the world, attending to the world. And he knows he's coming from a country that experienced genocide. Genocide. I mean, inconceivable tragedy. And that's, these are his children. These are his people. How can he not be weeping every day, aware of what still is going on in Tibet, the ongoing suppression, the ongoing, how can he ever be happy? How can he be entitled? How, how dare he be happy when his own people who look upon him like they look upon no other person in the world, help us, help us. And how little can he do you know, as an aging Tibetan Buddhist monk? How can he possibly be happy? And that's just his homeland. 
but does he care equally for Argentinians and Bolivians and Mississippians and so forth? The answer is yeah. The evidence is very clear. He doesn't prefer Tibetan people over, over anybody else. And so here's a man who's vividly, I think day and night, aware of the magnitude, the depth, the breadth of suffering and anguish and violence and conflict and mental afflictions in the world. And yet, if you've ever met him, did he seem to, be, seem to you to be a person in anguish? Consternation, despair, on the verge of tears, just bursting into tears? On occasion, yes. But on the whole, an embodiment of well-being, of warmth, of kindness. So I think he's giving us the thumbs up. It's okay to have peace of mind. It's okay. In fact, we'll be far more effective in whatever we wish to do to, see, to soothe and heal, to comfort a friend who's in distress, a pet who's, in, who's ill or injured, and anything else. Peace of mind is legitimate. We're entitled to it. But it doesn't come easily. It never has. Not to bed 100 years ago, pastoral, nomadic, Tibet, no, there are conflict there, it's, it's, it's planet Earth. And so finding what is the vision, what is the vision of genuine happiness? And then the Buddha says, go for it. Find that which truly makes you happy. And go for it. And it's really okay. It's really okay. Right. And so, and then you can read, you have, you have the notes, I think. I don't think I need to read, but I was so fascinated by the first great physician we have in Western civilization. And it's like he's giving a preface to the meditation we just did. I will read. They're short. Natural forces within us are the true healers of disease. And I think many psychologists know that. That psychologists, the psychologist cannot heal the mind of the person who is their client. or the, You can't do it. Not for any amount of money, not, and, and many hugs you might want to give them, or you can't heal anybody else's mind, but you may be indispensable for the healing of the mind and what actually heals the mind are natural forces within it. And of course, that's true in, in regular medicine, physical medicine. Not, not, not the finest Beverly Hills cosmetic surgeon can heal a paper cut. Not even a paper cut. They can't heal it, right? Nature heals. Forces within us heal. If I went right to it, why not just jump right into the deep, deep end of the pool? I'll speak from my intuition. And from the training I've received, oh, overwhelmingly, the training, the the Dharma education, the guidance that I received over the last now 30 years, it's been Dzogchen, the great perfection. And so we just go plunge right into the depth of the pool. Let's just go deep diving right now. Natural forces, what natural forces? Devas, Dakinis, Buddhas, angels, seraphim and cherubim, what, what are these natural forces? Are they biological? Are they genetic? What actually heals when your body is injured and it heals? When you are wounded with trauma, with anguish, with loss, and you suffer, what actually heals? And if we plunge into the depths and go to the bottom of the ocean, my strong conviction, very, very strong conviction, I don't think I can budge, is the ultimate source of healing is our own awareness. At the deepest level, pristine awareness, Buddha nature, primordial consciousness, the indwelling mind of clear light, and those are just the Buddhist terms. And the Hindus have their terms, and the Christian has their terms. Nobody has a monopoly on this. I'm convinced of this. That it's not simply generic forces, something kind of ethereal, wherever you are, thank you. It really is the deepest level 
of going so deep within that you are even transcending the demarcation of inside and outside. Because where is that demarcation actually? Where is the border between inside and outside? As I gaze over at you, you're over there, 12, 13 feet away, you're over there. And I'm aware of you, I'm attending to you. But exactly where is the border between us? Where is the border? I can't see it. I can't see it. The borders are all imaginary. They're all imaginary. And if someone wishes for good health, one must first ask oneself if he's ready to do away with the reasons for his illness. Only then is it possible to help him. Whoa, that's Dzogchen. <laughs> there are two great questions. And that is when we're suffering, when we're unhappy, we're distressed, we're feeling ill at ease, we can ask, what can I do to make this go away? Maybe I should come to a two-day seminar on meditation. Maybe that will help. I need to do something because I'm just stuck in a kind of routine, a rut of being distressed, anxious, ill at ease, no peace of mind, a bit grumpy, irritable on occasion, and maybe I could do better than this. What can I do? And then we learn something to do. A friend of mine, John Kabat-Zinn, came up with a simplified version of inspired by, like movies are inspired by real events, this MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, inspired by. It's not Zen, it's not Theravada, it's not Vipassana, but it's inspired by and he's helped must be tens of thousands of people by now. Tens of thousands, maybe more. But his contribution to the world is so benevolent. I know him personally. He's a very good-hearted man, benevolent man. And it's very simple. It's very basic. But it's enabling people to at least stop doing what they're already doing that's perpetuating their own unhappiness. A simple mindful presence. And it's mostly not doing. It's not something really clever and ingenious and brilliant that you are doing. It's mostly not doing. And in mostly not doing, you're mostly not doing things that perpetuate your own misery. So first of all, can you see the answer to the other question? The first question is, what can I do to find greater happiness, greater well-being, less suffering? What can I do? And the great wisdom traditions of the world, including modern psychology, psychology have a lot to say in response to that question. What can I do? It's wonderful. But the other question, which is completely, I've, I can say I've kind of fallen in love with it or committed myself to it, especially over the last 30 years, I've been practicing about 50 now, uh, is what am I already doing that is self-inflicted and perpetuating my own unhappiness and feeling ill at ease and so forth and so on? In other words, what can I stop doing? What am I already doing that I could stop? And the older I get, the more I like that question. It's much easier to stop doing something than to start doing something you've never done before. And then to do nothing is sometimes a good remedy. So I read Hippocrates. There we go. That's, that's Hippocrates. Thank you, Hippocrates. I really appreciated that. This whole, present, this whole uh, presentation here is a summary of the practice we just did. And you notice I use a lot of words. I spoke a lot during this 24 minutes. And this is like coming to a person, if you can imagine a person who's never, ever seen a bicycle. Never seen one and you want to give them a bicycle lesson so they can actually get it and learn how to ride a bike, you'd have to, I mean, they're just looking at this, what is that thing, you know? And then you'd say, well, you sit here, and then your feet go here, and I'll hold the bike, but sit, and, and then you'd, you'd have to actually talk a lot. And this is the brake, and this is how the pedals go, and this is how you balance, and you go around a current, you go like that. You'd probably use a lot of words to teach a person how to ride a bike. If they've never even seen one, have no idea even how it, how it goes forward. 
And why don't you fall over? That's really weird. Have you noticed? If you just sit on the mic, it falls right over. And you go, it does. I mean, that, if you, how would you know that? If I sit on the bike, I fall right over. And it, it hurts. And now you want me to get on it while it's, it's going, and then I can hurt more. Because it will fall over still, but I'll be in motion. You want me to hurt twice. So I don't think I like bicycles. They look quite scary. It's just a way to harm myself more. Except somehow physicists have figured out if you're mo in motion, then you don't fall over. Isn't that weird? Why should that be the case? That's why I studied physics. I wanted to learn how to ride a bike. <laughs> and not be afraid. Especially on a motorcycle at 100 miles an hour. I really wanted to know I wouldn't fall over. All myself. And so, so we move right on. Settling body, speech, and mind in the natural states. But of course, I will never use in this very short retreat. I won't use that, words, that many words again for that practice. But a lot of words at the beginning can be helpful if you've never done the practice. So you see the nuance, the subtlety of it. And then you do it a second time, and you need half as many words, and it's kind of half, half, half until you just say, OK, now settle body, speech, and mind as we've done before. And it's like you've ridden the bike 15 times. You know exactly to get on, and you go. And no words are needed. But it's a skill to be cultivated. It doesn't come naturally. And as I think about, because I have a great passion for education, I received wonderful education, care about it a lot. At the beginning of every classroom, from child, you know, child, early childhood on, right on, I wonder what would happen in modern education. If, in the very, if you have a 50-minute 50 50 minute period, that's what I got when I was in high school, etc. 50 minutes. If you spent, if you took, let's say, just give me 10% of that. I just want 10% of your 50-minute and I want the first five minutes. And so, and I like the first five minutes for all the students and the teacher together. Subtle body, speech, and mind in the natural state. So before the first word is spoken of algebra, history, social studies, whatever it is, before the first imparting of education happens, everybody in the classroom, settle the body, relaxed and still. The breathing not just flowing, mind still and clear, attentive. And the teacher addresses the students. Everybody settled? All right. Now, in the early 19th century in America, you give your history lesson. William James said that would be the, ex the education par excellence. But he didn't have a clue how to do it. He said, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to create attention. Nobody did in, in Western civilization except for the contemplatives, and we'd forgotten about them. But in the turn of the, you know, from the 19th to 20th century, he looked around, and he didn't travel outside of Europe. But he was very transatlantic kind of person, very cultured, French, German, English, fluent everywhere. Didn't have a clue. I don't have a clue how to train attention, but boy, if we could, it would be so beneficial. He never traveled to Asia, that planet, that distant planet, called China and India, Tibet, and so forth. And so we're here to cultivate, not pursue, peace of mind. And once you've learned how to settle body, speech, and mind in the natural states in that way, then it doesn't take 24 minutes. It can be done in 24 seconds. And what a way to begin anything. If your child comes home very troubled and really wants to talk, if both the mother or the father and the child 
I really want to listen to you. I want to give you my full attention. Before you struggle, let's just spend 15 seconds. Let's just sit there. And I'll be fully ready to give you my full attention. And you'll be fully ready to express whatever you want to tell me. And I'll be totally attentive to you. And what springs to mind, some of my old students will know exactly what sprang, springs to mind right now. Very dear friend of mine. Well, I'll see you again this spring together with Eva. This Benedictine monk, lovely man, Dharma brother, Father Lawrence Freeman. And I'll be, I'll, we'll spend be several, several days with him this coming March. But we've done a number of workshops, a few workshops, a couple of them in Santa Barbara. And he made a statement I've quoted many, many times because it's so meaningful to me. He is a Benedictine monk, a very gentle soul, a very attentive soul. Ripening nicely, he's about my age. It's kind of like, like wine that's coming to the perfect, perfect time. It's just about ready to drink. It's a very good year. And he says, the greatest gift we give to another person is our attention. It really speaks to me. So that's where we are here. And it's not only outside. How often do we suffer? Because we're not really attending to ourselves, except for perhaps in the most toxic way, in a way that's self-judgmental. And coming back to John Kabat-Zinn, I, I know his system quite well. I heard him give a two-and-a-half-hour presentation to the Dalai Lama of what's MBSR, and I was translating for him, together with Thupna Jimba. So that was the first time he ever, I think, met the Dalai Lama, and he, he spilled the beans, two and a half hours. MBSR, <laughs> Dalai Lama, here's what I've been doing, and here's the science. And uh, so I got to interpret for him during that occasion. And the very strong emphasis on being non-judgmental. As I listen, I asked John, what exactly do you mean about that, by that? Because people interpret that in different ways. Some of them not so intelligent. But John is a very intelligent guy. I said, John, what do you mean by attending to whatever's coming up in a non-judgmental way? And he said, what I mean by that is what I'm whatever I'm attending to, whether it's a person, a place, a situation, I'm attending to it and I'm drinking it in. I'm simply being present with it without just slapping onto it. I like and I don't like. We still like and don't like, but we're just first trying to drink it before obscuring it with our subjective impressions I like, I don't like. Oh, count me in. Count me in. It's wonderful. And of course, where it's especially wonderful, again, the opposite to mass on your own face, is if we can attend to our own bodies and more essentially our own minds and be aware. I see irritations coming up quite strongly. I see I'm getting, being very impatient. I'm seeing I'm getting a bit self-centered here. A bit of greed is coming up bit of domination, a bit of ego, kind of arrogance. I see that coming up. And I see kindness coming up, and I see benevolence, and I see serenity. I see gentleness and attentiveness coming up. And these are not, they're not all the same flavor. Some of these, if expressed, would be very harmful. There's no question about it. And some, if expressed, would be a wonderful contribution to the world. But some, not so nice. And so it's discerning, it's intelligent, recognizing the wholesome impulses come up and recognizing them as wholesome. And the destructive, the afflictive, the toxic impulses coming up and recognizing they are toxic. These are best to keep to myself, better not to express. Let it be. Just like if you have a, a contagious disease, you can't just make it go away. You don't judge yourself, I'm a bad person because I have a flu. You're not being judgmental, but you don't sneeze at other people. Because it's contagious, and mental afflictions are far more contagious than any known virus. 
Tell me the virus, the psychological virus that you can send with an email. Biological? No. Psychological? Definitely yes. And so that sense that we can attend to our own appearance, our own bodies, in a non-judgmental way, attentive way, but not only non-judgmental, that's a good start, but in a loving way, attentive way, caring for, watching over, looking after. And so to be able to give our attention wholly to ourselves and attending to, watching over, caring for ourselves, lovingly, our own bodies and minds, but discerningly, recognizing there are impulses that are really toxic. World wars come out of the mind. Racism and bigotry and misogyny, all the evils that human beings bring to the world, they come out of the mind. And all the majesty we bring to the world comes out of the mind. So being non-judgmental, good. Being discerning, even better. And so, among the 40 different methods that the Buddha taught for cultivating attention, the term is shamatha, means literally serenity, but it's exactly what these mornings will be about, of cultivating the attention, fulfilling William James' heart's desire. He never traveled to Asia. Didn't read any Asian language, so he just didn't know. He was typical for intellectuals in the late 19th century, the Victorian era, when Britannia ruled the waves, the, the empire, the, the, the sun never set on Great Britain. I mean, they were the dominant power at the time. The United States was coming up quick. But it was very clear to Europeans, Eurocentric, Eurocentric people, that we are civilization. Europe, America, we are civilization. And India, well, they have everything to gain from us, and we have nothing to gain from them, except the natural sources, thank you very much. And likewise, North and South America, and Africa, and, Australia, and everywhere else. That was the common attitude back then. That we have everything, everything to share to uncivilized people, and we have nothing to gain from them, except for your raw your, your, your resources, which will take, thank you very much. And so he was a man, a prisoner of his times, and I guess I am too. I wonder if people look back on what Alan Wallace said in the early 21st century, wow, boy, did he live in a small world. <laughs> Very possible. I hope so, actually. That means there's more room to grow. And so the, the just more generically, the Buddha states here in the Dhammapada, this, this synthesis collection of aphorisms, the wise one straightens the fluttering, unsteady mind, which is difficult to guard and hard to restrain, just as a fletcher straightens an arrow shaft. You're shaping. You're an artist. Imagine being an artist of your own mind. Because it's very malleable. You can shape it. You can shape it in very toxic ways, very harmful ways. Parents who raise their children to be racist or misogynist and so forth, or religious bigots. You can, you, you can learn how to do that. Take some training. And so we can shape the mind, disfigure the mind. And we're all artists. So whether we come up with something grotesque or something magnificent and splendid, we are shaping the mind. And so to shape the mind consciously as an artist, to make of your mind something that would be a blessing to share with the world, would be to be a great artist. And like a fish that has been taken out of its watery abode and thrown onto dry land, the mind flutters and trembles when it is removed from the abode of Mara, the tempter. The personification of everything that would draw us away, seduce us, away from an understanding of the true sources of suffering and the true sources of happiness. That's Mata. 
that our problems really lie up there with that political party, that government, that business, that neighbor, that spouse, that's Mara. Oh, it's not your fault. You have no responsibility. You're the victim here. You're the victim here. It's somebody else's fault. You want happiness? Look over here. Look over here. This, this is going to be it. That's Mara. Personification of Mara. When you spend 24 minutes, that was a lot more than 15 minutes, wasn't it? No socket. Spend 24 minutes. Disengage from hedonia. Because I wasn't really entertaining you. Hopefully the, the voice was not disruptive, although it is a bit multitasking. Um, but whether it's 24 minutes or going on a one-day one retreat, imagine, as the Jews so wisely did and the Muslims and the Christians, traditional ones, saying, I'm not so busy that I can't take out one day of the, board, one day of the week to devote myself only to my spiritual just came, came from Israel, and the Orthodox Jews, they take their Sabbath very seriously. They won't drive. And, and, they, and I, I was leading a retreat there, and no hot food on the Sabbath. They won't cook. That's work. Doesn't mean you can't eat, but be satisfied with cold food. And it's Israel, no problem. If you're an Eskimo, it can be harder. <laughs> but one day, I mean, that's a nice habit. Maybe we should have a Buddha Sabbath. Just one day a week. That's for nothing other than the cultivation of your heart and mind. And this means that for a little while, whether 24 minutes or eight hours on a Saturday or a Sunday, we just turn off the television, turn off the internet, turn off all that which was draw us outwards and clutter the mind and fill the mind with dust and throttle back and sit quietly so you can retort to Pascal that's generally true, but it's not true of me. I have learned how to sit quietly in my chambers. And I'm not doing any mischief. <laughs> For at least one day a week, I'm not a violent person. Not to myself or anybody else. But those of you who spend time in retreat, especially if you go in for some sustained period, and you're now disengaged from, separated from, all the things that kind of uplifted you, helped you, sustained you, conversations, friendships, internet, email, socializing, food, entertainment, music, movies, that just kind of make this, this life pretty bearable, sometimes even pleasant. And suddenly, all those sources, those catalysts for hedonia, for stimulus-driven pleasure, they're almost all gone, almost all gone. I would, I would encourage you, if you're going to retreat, and you don't have to travel far here from Sacramento. Go to a place of natural beauty. Go to a place of natural beauty. So your one hedonia that you can rely upon every time you come off the cushion is the beauty of the environment. And yogis, contemplatives, sages, mystics throughout history, east and west, have generally found beautiful places for going into retreat. That that's enough to just be able to drink in the beauty of nature, the sun, the moon, the stars, the land, the, the rain, the snow, the rivers, and the grass. Is this enough? Is this enough hedonia to keep your head above water? And if that is enough, then you say, and now that's enough, and now go back into solitude. This one, I think it's maybe a Sufi. A Sufi, was, he was in his meditation, and somebody called out to him, friend, come out. Experience the beauties of nature. Come out. 
and the sutras about it. But I'm so experiencing so much beauty within. Thank you. I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. When we go into a rehabilitation center that's called a meditation hut, <laughs> and having, I think, literally become addicted to. Now, more than when I was a kid, and more in the early 20th century than when I was a kid, and more, early, more in the 19th century than 20th century, I think we are literally, and I have to include myself to some extent here, addicted to stimulation. I mean, that's the de deal about the guy putting his finger in the, fig in, the, in the electric socket. At least it's stimulating. You know, something to get his mind off. And so, addiction to stimulation. I mean, I bought some trousers the other day, and I had to have listened to music, really loud music, <laughs> buying trousers. That's not why I went to the store to hear music. I needed to buy some trousers. <laughs> but I had this noisy music just blaring at me, like you couldn't buy the trousers and be happy without some music, right? <laughs> and like, wherever you go, it's kind of like, but you need stimulation. You always need stimulation. And then we got accustomed to it, we got addicted to it, habituated to it. And when you're going into retreat, when you're going to solitude, you're going cold turkey. You're just removing yourself from all the stimulation to which we become so easily habituated, if not flat out addicted. And so, especially when you go in for not for a day or 24 minutes, but you go for weeks or months, and you're having almost no communication with anyone else, and you're living in utter simplicity, where the only hedonia is really bland food, and maybe the beauties of nature. And one extraordinary yogi I met just recently, Simple name, Lama Karma. Oh, simple name, majestic being. But he described to us in detail, at a point after practicing for 24 years, he decided he wanted to do the kind of practice that we're doing here. And he said, I want to practice these until I plumb the depths, achieve shamatha. And the teacher lit up. He said, oh, you want to do that now, do you? All righty then. <laughs> little, little bit of Jim Carrey. All righty then. That's what Lama Nanjoba, all righty then. Okay, here's your cabin. And you stay there, and you stay there all day, and come out only at night when nobody will encounter you. And I'll be the only person you see. And now go for it. Go for it. You practice for six months. Chief Shamatha. But that's pretty intense. Cold turkey. Withdrawal symptoms. Expect withdrawal symptoms. And I mean literally. When you have nothing between you and your mind, except for space, your mind is going to be like that fish fluttering and trembling on the soil, on the sand. Your mind's going to start freaking out. Probably. Probably. It's going to give you hell. It's going to throw everything at you. Let me out of here. Think of all those people back in the city. They're having such a good time. And you, you numbskull, what are you doing here? You're wasting your time. You're not going to progress. You're not going to get anywhere. You're just wasting your time. Get out there and do something meaningful, like watch a movie, anything. You're such a, you're such a loser. You're really worthless. You're kind of nuts. Maybe you're, I think you're making yourself crazier. Yeah, I think you are. De no, definitely, you're getting me crazier. You're walking backwards. You're an idiot. Stop doing this. It's crazy. <laughs> Welcome to meditation. It's lots of fun. <laughs> so the Buddha taught 40 different methods, and I think I'll say this and we'll take a break. The Buddha taught in the Pali Canon alone, that's not Mahayana, Vajrayana, Dzogchen, and so forth. In the Pali Canon, the basis for Theravada Buddhism, he taught 40 different methods. 
And he prescribed these methods like a doctor, like a Tibetan doctor prescribes herbal treatments for people of different type of constitution, temperament, and imbalances in the body. It's not one method like TM or MBSR or mindfulness of breathing. There's not one me size, one method that fits all. The Buddha prescribed them very much like the great physician that he was for different temperaments and constitution and so forth. Among the different, and he spoke of specifically five different types of temperament and recommended for this one, I recommend this. He was really the doctor, the doctor for the mind, to heal the mind completely until you're an arhat. And your mind is completely free, completely healed of all mental afflictions. Such that whatever you encounter, mental afflictions will not be what comes up. Oh, I'd like that. But he said there's one personality type. And these are people who are strongly prone to rumination. Mind-wandering, chit-chat, the obsessive compulsive flow of internal chit-chat. There were people like that in India 2,600 years ago. They're a special personality type. And those people, he said, oh, you folks. Oh, for you folks, there's only one method that will work. Out of 40, only one for you folks. And that's mindfulness of breathing. The other 39, not for you. They'll probably make you tighter. You'll probably get wrapped up in knots. It'll constrict you rather than loosening you. So I'll end on this note. I went to a rodeo. A friend of mine was a real cowgirl, like it. It was a horse, real horsewoman, loved horses. And she said, Alan, you want to go to a rodeo? I said, okay, I've never been to it. Sure. And those poor horses, they cinch them around the belly so they're really in pain. And then they whip them, and the horse is freaking out. The horse is traumatized. That's why it's bucking all over the place. Not just bucking just because there's a man on him. It's bucking because there's so much pain. And so they come out of there just kicking as soon as they start. And that's because they, they have this cinched around their belly. And then for the entertainment of everyone, then the cowboy holds on with one lonely hand. I'm macho, look at me, I'm macho. And he stays on as long as he can. And that's how you break a horse. Break a horse, that's what they're using. That's how you break a horse. You master the horse, you overpower the horse. You dominate the horse. And that's one way, and then the horse will do what you want because it's afraid of you. And you're given a lot of pain and it doesn't want to be pain. So it will do because it's afraid of you. And then if you want to watch one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my life, it's still on Netflix, I'm pretty sure, Buck. A human being, if there's ever a Bodhisattva cowboy in the world, I would nominate him. It's a beautiful movie, it's all true, it's a documentary. He was one, if he didn't invent it, he was definitely early generation of the horse whispers. The basis for the book and the movie with Robert Redford, he was the guy. And this documentary, shows how you subdue, as you subdue your own mind, how you, I, mean, I can't find the right verb, but how you love the horse and express your, your love for the horse in a way that the horse loves you back and wants to do what you want to do. And he had his own steed, his own mount, and one of the most touching images in the film was when he's riding his own horse, and you can hardly see him move. But the horse would step forward and step backward, step to the right, step to the left. And you'd hardly see anything. How? And they, you know the horse is doing exactly what he wants. But it's the subtlest gesture from him. And he loved his horse. And the horse loved him. And they were together. He was a horse whisperer. You gentle the horse, you soothe, you love the horse. And the horse loves you and wants to serve you as you want to take care of the horse. It's symbiotic, right? 
And so to develop that relationship with your own mind, be the horse whisperer of your mind. And that's mindfulness of breathing. It's a horse whisperer. You're not breaking your mind. And I can't find the right verb. It's not quite subdue. So I just have to say maybe cultivate. But gentle your mind. Find peace of mind. And with that note, I think we have a lot of people here. Maybe 20 minutes, do you think it's a good break? Or can you, 50, 20 minutes? I'd like it to be leisurely. Okay? <laughs> break. Come back at 11 o'clock. We'll be right, right back to practice. <laughs>